Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we were excited to resume in September of 2021 here in our home city of New York. And we're excited to resume around the world in 2022. Our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're excited to bring you the latest in our series of conversations around blockchain, crypto, and Web3. And today's guest is Steve Kokinos. Uh, Steve is the CEO of Algorand, which is the leading layer one blockchain protocol that prides itself on speed, throughput, and environmental sustainability. Steve is responsible for the overall business vision and strategy for Algorand. Uh, Steve is a serial entrepreneur who most recently was the co-founder and executive chairman of Fuse, and he was also the co-founder of Blade Logic, uh, which was later acquired by BMC Software for $800 million. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge, which is a global alternative investment firm that's working on some very exciting projects with Algorand that hopefully he and Steve have a chance to touch on during today's talk. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to him for the interview. Stephen, thank you for joining us on, on SALT Talks. I want to delve more into that wonderful biography. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your personal and professional background. How did you get the lilt and bent towards entrepreneurship? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, you know, my parents were entrepreneurs, and so I think I was exposed to it, uh, you know, from when I was a kid. Uh, but, you know, I actually originally studied music in school, and I was studying uh, electronic music before it was fashionable. Uh, and I went to McGill in Montreal, uh, and a lot of the program was very theoretical, and you had to really learn programming and computer science. And so I started spending more time on that. And that was right around the time, you know, kind of mid nineties that uh, the internet was really starting to, you know, pick up some steam. And I just felt that, you know, that really seemed like um, something that was going to change the world and ended up starting my first company, which was uh, an early internet infrastructure provider. Uh, when I was 19, we built that up over several years and, and built data centers around the world and eventually were acquired. But, um, you know, I think it's really been, for me, kind of this idea that, you know, as I start to dig into things, uh, I think I just sort of get passionate about them and it, it really feels like something you almost have to pursue. So let's talk about alternative history, like a different direction for Mr. Coquino. So you would have been a DJ? You would have been DJ Steve? Well, I played I played guitar also. So I, you know, I, I think um, actually film scoring is the thing I was most interested in. So uh, it seemed like there was, you know, kind of interesting opportunity there and room to be experimental in ways that um, kind of mainstream music probably doesn't have as much. Okay, but there's something that happens. There's a rock hitch in the head, an apple, something that hits you that says, wait a minute, there's something happening here that I can take advantage of. I'm 19, so you're incredibly young to get that business started. Uh, tell me the impulses. Tell me the instincts. The reason I'm asking this is I want to get into Algorand in a second. You and I both see something in Algorand, uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm Curious as to where you develop these instincts. So go ahead. You're 19. 
Yeah. Well, and I think for me, I had just seen, you know, things like America online and thought, you know, just even the idea of a dial-up modem modem or being able to connect computers seemed really interesting. You know, if you think about, you know, in the 80s or, or early 90s, you know, what computers did exist. Like I tried to explain my kids to my kids that the internet didn't exist at all. There was nothing. You just turned your computer on and you could do whatever you want and you could type on it, but that that was the pretty much it. And um I found that that connectivity to other people and to information that was out there really fascinating. Uh, and also sort of the technical underpinnings of it, which, you know, ironically, uh, were very much about decentralization and giving publishing power to people uh, instead of, you know, just only large media outlets um, seemed, you know, for me, like it was clearly going to be the future. And I think if you go back 20 years, at the same time, you know, the mainstream media and and I think lots of people were just saying, well, why on earth would I shop online? What's this internet thing for? It makes no sense. Um, so I do think it is the case that young people often, um, you know, uh, kind of understand things inherently like a little bit more quickly than um, than people who are more entrenched. And so for me, it was really just there was an opportunity to get involved. And as you dug into the community, it was a really welcoming place where there was only a handful of people uh, that were really kind of, um, you know, very well versed in what's going on and understood the tech deeply. And, and there were ways to contribute to all sorts of different projects. So it was, an, I think what for me, there was sort of an instinct that there was something interesting going on. And, you know, but I think more than that, as, as you started to, you know, as we started to work on it, you know, found there were, you know, a bunch of other like-minded people that were kind of very early. So it's a very good segue to where we are right now. We're both a little older uh, than when the internet started. Let's call that web 1.0. We moved into web 2.0 in the world of uh, social media. And we're on the frontier of something that's being called Web 3.0. You see it, I see it. So maybe we're not as old as we think. Uh, for the young listeners out here, how would you describe Web 3.0? What does that mean, Web 3.0? Sure. Well, and I, you know, I, at least what I find exciting, uh, I'll define it in a second, but you know, what I find exciting about um, Web 3.0 is if you look at the past 20 years, uh, you know, the, whether you like sort of the results of the internet or not, or, you know, philosophically resonates with you, it certainly changed the way people communicate and shop and consume media. Uh, but I think if you also look across the past 20 years, the way, um, you know, the way people transact and exchange money uh, and, and invest hasn't really changed that much over that period of time, at least certainly much less up until the last couple of years. And so I think um, broadly to me, Web 3.0 really is the first time that financial infrastructure exists on public networks um, where people can collaborate and see what other people are working on and innovate very quickly. And I think um, really it's creating an internet of money where uh, money can become programmable. Uh, there are new financial applications that give rise. And I think it's public blockchain networks uh, that are really the fundamental enabler of that. And I think what we're seeing is a whole wave of innovation um, built on top of public blockchains uh, in the form of Web 3.0 apps uh, that take advantage of the underlying technology. And, and um, you know, I think we're, you know, we really, we finally made it to the start line where things are moving quickly, but, but that's, I really see it as a way of creating programmable money, programmable financial products, uh, and having those be on public networks where the, uh, everyone can collaborate with each other and, um, you know, really financial tools have only existed inside of institutions um, really 
since, you know, for hundreds of years. And this is the first time where they exist in the public domain. Um, and I think that's driving innovation very quickly right now. So we, we, we agree, but I want you to give me some concrete examples of that. So uh, programmable money and technology being such that we'll now be able to transfer value back and forth with each other without intermediaries. Give me a few examples of that. Like you think, okay, wow, this is life-changing. This is a massive de-layering of the economy, um, massive efficiencies. Sure. Well, I'll give an example. Um, on Algorand, there's a project that fractionalizes access to uh, income-generating real estate. And you know, if you look up until now, the majority of real estate ends up getting owned by institutional um, players, you know, there's sort of fees in the middle, there's intermediaries, this whole sort of series of, of people there. Um, they're actually taking the title to a piece of, of uh, you know, to a property. So a building generates, uh, that, that collects rent and putting ownership of that on the blockchain and selling it in $50 increments. And because uh, that ownership is now all managed by smart contracts, i.e., programmable money, um, they're able not only to um, distribute ownership across thousands of people, uh, they're also able to uh, make kind of the buy-in price much smaller, i.e. like 50 bucks and or as low as 50 bucks. And then um, yield, i.e. distributions are also computed on chain using those smart contracts and distributed using USDC, um, which is, you know, US dollar stablecoin that, that most people are familiar. And so I think that's a very interesting example of delayering where you go from a situation where it's, you know, the person selling a piece of property ultimately gets sort of a price that is backed into by institutional investors based on their yield. Um, and the people who have access to that investment opportunity um, are pretty limited to, um, you know, people that, that um, you know, have a lot of money to deploy. Whereas now, the person selling property ends up getting a higher price with a lack of intermediaries and the people who are able to, to um, participate in investment opportunities um, really is, uh, is almost anybody. And so I think those are, it's a simple example. Um, I think in terms of, you know, the power we're seeing there, um, you know, they'd intended to do a handful of projects over the course of 2021 as test cases. Um, they've done about hundred projects and the average one is selling out uh, in about 15 minutes. So I think these are, you know, what we're starting to see is um, not only kind of theoretical, uh, theoretical ideas, but as you start to put smart contracts to work and you start to, you know, really look at how you can broaden access, um, the results are pretty good for everybody. So it's an entirely new financial landscape. So uh, 30, 40 years ago, probably 45 years ago, they invent the mortgage-backed security, Steve. Uh, they figure out they can take all of our home mortgages and bundle them together and then sell them to institutions. Uh, we're now looking at a situation because of smart contracts, uh, programmable money, you're going to be able to fractionalize things that were once illiquid or were once unavailable to the general public. Uh, and so you're going to be able to do that without having all these intermediaries charge these aggressive fees. Is that fair to say? I think that's for sure fair to say. There's a couple of other things that I would I would add, though. Um, one is, you know, broadening access isn't necessarily just, you know, isn't limited to, you know, a particular location. Um, so one of the interesting dynamics uh, about the example I just gave is that, 
um, you know, we're seeing a big surge uh, from people in Latin America who are very interested um, in, in, you know, these types of products. And for, you know, if you look at Latin America as an example, about 90% of the people there have smartphones, uh, but less than half have bank accounts. And so I think it's also the case that you have people that have been sort of systematically excluded from the financial system almost entirely uh, that now will be exposed uh, to um, products, yield generating opportunities, borrowing and lending um, through uh, public blockchain applications and you know, programmable financial tools uh, before they ever even interact with an institution at all. And so I think that's pretty exciting that you know, now we're, we're actually bringing new people uh, into the financial system that, that you know, have never been there before. And, uh, you know, I think that that's only going to be a benefit to economic growth. So we, we have this introduction uh, uh, to Bitcoin. It happens uh, 12 and a half or uh, years ago, 12 years ago. Uh, it is a revolutionary technology. Uh, the blockchain uh, is something where we can now transfer value to each other without this intermediary. Um, it's a little clunky Bitcoin uh, technologically, uh, but there's uh, layer two protocols that make it a little bit more efficient. Um, but you have this introduction of other smart contract like currencies, if you will, or cryptocurrencies, tokens. You, 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 you frame it out for us. Tell us uh, the leap from something like Bitcoin to something like Algorand and what the difference would be between a Bitcoin and an Algorand token. Sure. Well, you know, first of all, uh, you know, I think that Bitcoin is a, a fascinating use of both cryptography and distributed computer science. And, and I think it's, um, you know, certainly proving to be an enduring asset. And so I, I think that, you know, we're, we, we believe that, you know, Bitcoin is really like a reserve currency um, for the, the blockchain economy. And, you know, so if you look at Algorand, um, Algorand was started by Silvio McCauley. Silvio is kind of the OG um, of modern cryptography and, and created a lot of the cryptographic techniques um, that people use every day uh, and was an MIT professor for, for over 40 years. And what he felt was that uh, while decentralized networks like Bitcoin were very interesting, if the entire world was going to use them, if we're going to have billions of people using these tools every day, uh, a fundamentally different approach was needed. Uh, and you know, he really focused on a few different things. One is uh, electricity and sustainability. Second is computational waste uh, in terms of you know, having lots of computers need to, to solve puzzles. Uh, and then the third was sort of speed and finality of transactions um, with the idea that really, if you start to scale up both number of users and value on chain, uh, people need to understand what they own at all times. And so I think what we're seeing now is a, a you know, handful of next generation networks um, like Algorand um, that are sort of approaching not only the problem of being a public blockchain, but also really looking at how you add programmability, um, but, but add those things at scale. And I think one of the tricky parts in this world is that uh, there's a trilemma that Vitalik uh, Buterin posed, uh, which is that you can choose two out of decentralization, scalability, and security. Um, Silvio really believes strongly that that's, that's not the case, um, but definitely at what we've seen out there are um, projects that kind of either skew to the central centralization side um, and get high performance or people that skew very far to the decentralization side but don't get performance. I think Algorand has tried 
uh, and you know succeeding at delivering both scale uh, you know and security without de sacrificing decentralization. And I think that's an important point because as you get into things like national security and and you know national projects going on on chain, um, knowing you can always transact with someone and that no one party could say take over a network, I think is very important. And I think the fact that say Bitcoin as an example has um, you know, is very like emblematic of a truly decentralized network in many ways, um, I think is is an important, uh, important element. And so I think that that's, you know, it, these things sound, I think, a little bit heady to kind of people that aren't in uh, the blockchain space. Uh, but I think more and more, you know, these are going to be first class problems as, as you know, a bigger chunk of the world use it, uses it. And so I think definitely Bitcoin sort of philosophically is great. And I think as a reserve currency has proven a lot of strength. Um, but definitely as you start to build out, uh, you know, more complex applications, um, you know, other tools are needed. You're, you're so good at explaining this. We have a ton of young people that listen in on these uh, uh, broadcasts. What is a layer one technology? What does that mean, layer one technology? Sure. So, um, you know, if you take Algorand as an example, so Algorand is a public blockchain network. Um, it's built around the Algorand protocol. That's where it got its name. Uh, and that protocol governs really how the next block is chosen in a blockchain and how kind of the underlying technologies um, or how the, the chain is constructed, remains secure, and you know how you know you decide you know what, what a valid block looks like and, and and not a very simple in a very simple way. Um, I guess one way that you could think about this is uh, on the internet. You know everybody has an internet service provider and we're connected via inter internet service providers. But really, those ISPs are effectively the pipes that allow for um, data to to move across the network. Um, you know, and I think you could even look at the electrical network as a way. Uh, it's kind of similar network where, where people use it for lots of things, a little bit probably harder to contextualize today. Uh, I think public blockchain networks uh, and layer one networks that really govern consensus protocols um, are what enable people to transact. I think what's different in public blockchains is that um, we're communicating uh, value as opposed to the internet, which is largely communicating you know, other things like, you know, media and, and sound and uh, allows people to, to transact um, and buy products. And so, you know, I think these it's this is very sort of fundamental tech. Uh, but ultimately, over time, you know, we really see public blockchains as the next public utilities uh, that everyone in the world will use. I think over time, the, the drivers of consumption of kind of layer one public blockchains will be the applications that are, are built on top of them. You, you you got a couple of these layer one uh, protocols, Steve. Um, is there room for how many? How you know we've got eight thousand cryptocurrencies, I guess, on CoinGecko, and if I'm wrong, I'm probably uh, under by several hundred. Um, is there how, how many? Is there room for when you see the future of Web 3.0? Sure. I mean, I think that's a, a pretty good question. I guess let me pose it a, a slightly different way. I mean, I'd say one, um, there are many tokens, but there are only a handful of public networks which those those tokens ride on. And so, um, you know, there's probably ten or twelve, you know, meaningful public um, public blockchain protocols and networks right now. So there's not hundreds and hundreds or thousands of, of those. Um, and you know, there's a lot of them that are derivative of of um, projects like Ethereum or, or Bitcoin. Uh, I think which have done 
um, you know, an enormous amount in creating the community. Uh, but, you know, each has slightly different technical choices. Now, you know, your question is, can all these different networks um, survive over time? Uh, you know, the way I would look at it is, you know, today, less than 1% of the internet population um, is transacting on public blockchains. And, you know, that's created, you know, a couple trillion dollars uh, of value across the different networks. Um, you know, a move either even to say 5% or 10% uh, of uh, internet users uh, is going to drive tremendous demand for layer one public networks. And, you know, I, I think that if you go back again, uh, without, you know, dating myself too much here, you know, the early days of the internet, first we had dial-up modems, then that got saturated as soon as people started putting pictures on web pages. Uh, then, you know, there was DSL and kind of build out of slightly faster networks. Uh, people tried to start streaming audio and other things. Those got completely clogged up and it was a nightmare. You know, it really took about a decade for um, supply of, of bandwidth and the internet to catch up with growing demand uh, for internet applications. And I think we're at sort of the, the cusp of the same thing on public blockchains. And so I think when you see congestion on networks like Ethereum, um, you know, that's sort of the beginning of what is a bigger demand curve that, that's going to hit uh, virtually all of the, the layer one blockchains that uh, that have capacity. And so I think certainly um, there's, you know, room for uh, a handful of, of major public networks. Uh, I think we're going to see growing demand kind of across them broadly, you know, over really the next decade as things start to, to spin up rapidly. Um, now, I think on the flip side, if you said, are there a lot of you know, tokens that aren't representative of enduring value and that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. I think that's that's true in any market. Excuse me. But um, I think here, you know, we were definitely at the beginning of, of a much bigger wave of, of utilization. And I think that's going to drive a lot of demand um, for next gen networks, you know, like Algorand over the, the coming years. What would you say to the skeptics? Um, the, the vision that you're professing as this I mean, great magnitude, great transformation of the overall economy uh, going to happen on the on the web. There were skeptics for doing retail uh, on the Internet back in the 90s and into 2000. Uh, we're seeing those same types of skeptics. What would you say to the skeptics? What are they missing, Steve? Sure. I think that's uh, so a couple of different things. I mean, I, you know, one, I saw a clip somebody sent me the other day of the Today Show going back to 20 years ago, asking about the internet where, you know, literally, you know, late nineties, you know, they're asking, you know, what, what, what on earth would anybody use the internet for this? This is crazy. Why don't you just go to the store? So I think it is definitely the case that for the people who are early in at the internet, there was a lot of conviction. There was a belief that would change, you know, the way people work and consume media and shop and, and many other things. Uh, and I think largely those have, those have come true, even if there's some side effects that, that, um, we know we don't necessarily like. So I think here what what you know we're starting to see more of is um, if you take a step back, you know, people in finance are looking for yield. They're looking to uh, for new economic opportunities, uh, and I think we're starting to see much much uh, or much more sophistication in kind of markets uh, for crypto and blockchain that we've seen before. Uh, and so I think that's also means the amount of, of capital being deployed is increasing very dramatically. And I think one of the things that's misunderstood is, you know, in a way, um, yields and other things being higher than in traditional economies are really reflective of the fact that um, Web3 also represents a shift from 
sort of uh, counterparty risk being one between two people to counterparty risk being um, algorithmic and trusting in technology and the need to understand that. And I, I think that that is sort of a, a fundamental shift. Um, you know, the other is the fact that sort of new financial applications are largely being consumed by uh, people outside the U.S. that simply have no access uh, to the kinds of tools that, that say people in America, um, you know, can use every day, I think is, is, you know, really a paradigm shift. And so, you know, what we're, what we're seeing is increasingly sophisticated players, markets that are becoming more sophisticated, um, new forms of financial tools that are drawing in users from around the world. And I think if you look at those growth curves kind of on all respects, um, it looks, you know, very similar to what we've seen in other kind of big waves of adoption, whether it's, you know, cloud technology or the internet itself um, uh, or others. And so, uh, you know, the history is no guarantee of the future for sure. Uh, but I think, you know, for anybody who's involved, you know, I, I think those sort of, um, those sorts of indicators, uh, I think would, would lead everyone to believe that that we're definitely at the, the cusp of something that's going to be used by sort of everybody around the world all the time. So obviously you and I are in agreement on that. And there are very large corporations now that are coming around to this. They're recognizing that these protocols and tools are going to make them more efficient, potentially more profitable. What happens for Algorand when a large corporation comes in to do due diligence? Uh, let's say like an AXA. You know, you and I were at the Decipher event a few weeks ago. Uh, the North American CEO is making a decision to use Algorand, uh, uh, basically to put it in, inside of the products that they're working on at AXA XL. Uh, tell me the types of questions that get asked of Algorand and tell me your responses. Why are large corporations choosing Algorand as a layer one over some of the others? Sure. Well, you know, I, I would probably bucket uh you know, institutional players and uh, enterprises and, and countries in kind of a similar bucket uh, where, you know, those are people that have kind of long-term time horizons or they expect applications um, or products to live uh, for a long time. And so I think it goes back to um, the idea of algorithmic risk and algorithmic counterparty risk that I brought up before. I know that's a little bit of a, you know, probably foreign topic to, to many different people. Um, but, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, a country and their national interests, um, we're starting to see, you know, more things of that scale where people look at the nature of, you know, public blockchain networks and look at the opportunity it presents them. And, you know, in a world where, you know, traditional trading partners, you know, may not necessarily be willing to trade with each other, um, in kind of the near term or long term, uh, or at least the certainty of that is lower, you know, understanding what ways that people can be assured that they'll always be able to tra transact um, is important. And so, you know, when you look at it through that lens or the lens of an institution like AXA, they're saying, okay, if I'm going to originate, you know, tens of billions of dollars of loans or insurance policies, or I'm going to have you know, materially all of my population using applications on a network like this, um, you know, what are the kinds of, you know, what matters to the, that sort of group of people? Well, if you're a country, you might be worried about things like uh, post-quantum security. And how do I ensure that uh, a network is not only decentralized, uh, but also going to be secure against threats 
kind of today and in and, and the future. And I think that's important to both institutions um, and to, to national interests. You know, the second is decentralization. Uh, you know, in cases where people have large scale applications that are global, knowing the no individual, say, uh, you know, you know, adversary, whether it could be a, an a unfriendly government or anyone else could potentially uh, attack a network and, you know, have influence over it. And so I think those are, those are the kinds of things that, um, that we're seeing people look at. And I think that's where over the long run, you know, decentralization becomes very important. Um, the quality of, of technology and kind of the underlying theory becomes very important. Um, and, uh, you know, I think really, you know, in the case of Algorand, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, very thoughtful technology that's been, um, you know, originally conceived of by Silvio, but now lots of different people in the community that address a lot of, a lot of those different concerns. So it's fast, it's reliable. Uh, somebody, uh, when you talk about net carbon negative, how is Algorand net carbon negative? Explain that to somebody. What does that mean? Um, sure. Uh, well, first, you know, I just wanted to hit on reliable. I think this is, you know, something that's, that's, you know, very important. Um, you know, Bitcoin has never gone down. Algorand has never gone down. Uh, we think that it's very important that uh, public blockchain networks be, you know, effectively unstoppable. And, uh, you know, I think we have seen a lot of other approaches. And I think that where uh, networks are, are more fragile or have had technical difficulties, and I think that's also something that um, you know, people at scale, um, at scale really look to, uh, you know, but I, I think the other part, and, you know, I mentioned this earlier is sustainability is something that's, that's, you know, very important. And we're seeing this, um, not only, you know, kind of in a theoretical way, but we see, you know, people in the creator economy, musicians, artists, you know, are very concerned, uh, about, you know, generating carbon, uh, if they're going to post, you know, music rights or art on chain. And uh, we care a lot about that as well. Um, to give a little bit of a counterpoint um, in terms of just efficiency as a starting point, uh, Bitcoin uses um, about the same power as Greece, uh, I believe today, give or take. Um, Algorand uses the power of about 10 homes uh, to handle the uh, the same you know level of transactional volume. So I think that's Kind of a critical point. Um, the second is uh, we see a lot of sustainable pro sustainability projects deploying on Algorand. Um, one of them is, is called Climate Trade. Um, they uh, have a marketplace for um, UN certified carbon credits. And one of the things that uh, that happens at Algorand is the transaction fees um, ultimately go to um, purchasing on chain uh, carbon credits that that neutralize the small amount of power that goes on. And again, through smart contracts, you know, can make sure that 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 happens in sustainably and an ongoing basis. Uh, so that's sort of a permanent element. And um, you know, we think that's important, uh, even though you know, Algorand as a, a protocol by design is is dramatically more efficient from sort of computational and energy um, requirements. You know, we think also making sure that that what does get consumed gets offset is, um, is is something that's very important as well. Tell me about the future for Algorand, Steve. What's your vision over the next three to five years? Well, you know, if you look, I, I think more and more, we wanna see the community starting to build, you know, great applications um, that are drawing more users. You know, if you look just over the course of, you know, 2021, um, you know, there's, uh, I think a little under 17 million users uh, on Algorand um, that, that get, um, you know, looked at by way of creation of wallets. 
Uh, we're seeing transactional volume go up and, and you know asset value go up on chain. There's about $15 billion worth of assets on chain. So I, I think for us, you know, what we look at is how the community is growing. Um, you know, at the beginning of the year, there was there was probably a, a thousand people building on Algorand, um, you know, day to day. Today, there's over 10,000 and we're seeing that grow very quickly. So I, I think what we really want to see are more developers. We want to see the developer community growing very quickly, but we want to see applications, you know, deploying that are taking advantage of the tech, um, but also that are, are available to use by anybody. And so, you know, I think over the next, you know, couple of years, few years, you're going to see um, platforms like like Algorand um, being used, move from being used by tens of millions of people to hundreds of millions, you know, and then ultimately billions of people uh, over the, the course of time. And I think really, you know, that's we're sort of the trajectory that, that we're on. So it'll be exciting to see. But what I also think is a very interesting dynamic is that um, for public blockchains, it's really about the people who are building on top of them you know, less so, you know, the people who uh, who created them in the first place. And I think that's one of the most exciting things is just the sheer volume of, of projects and people that are are building new applications uh, for the network. Tell me about some of the government initiatives that you're you're working on. You've got uh, uh, El Salvador is using Bitcoin as legal tender, but they're using Algorand to help process their uh, welfare system, their social services system. Tell, tell us the nuance there and tell us what other projects you're working on. Yeah, I think this is a, like definitely a very interesting one. And I, I think one of the ways that we see um, new users coming on chain very quickly is uh, are some of these national projects. Um, uh, you know, so El Salvador selected Algrand as its national blockchain infrastructure. So things like the land title registry, um, as you mentioned, um, you know, the, the social insurance system uh, and others all sort of, uh, you know, kind of handled that way with, with applications that are being built in a national wallet that helps people use those services. So we think that that's pretty exciting. Um, Columbia also, their uh, vaccine passport system runs on Algrand. And, you know, we've seen several million uh, users created. And that's a way of, of giving people the ability to you know, certify that they're vaccinated. And when they go into a restaurant, they scan the QR code and it, it proves that they are and uses the blockchain to kind of validate that without um, giving out people's personal information. So I, I think that that's sort of one class of application. Um, Bermuda's healthcare payments uh, are being run on top of Algorand. I think that's, you know, another interesting example where you know, you're giving uh, kind of the, the power to control, you know, who sees your healthcare information back to the people instead of uh, instead of central parties, and also taking sort of layers of inefficiency out of the, the payment system itself. So you know, I think those are more kind of infrastructure-based. I think there's some others, though. Um, you know, Italy has a national music rights system called CI. And I think, you know, I like this example because it's a real intersection of kind of a traditional world and, uh, you know, kind of the blockchain world that I think we're starting to see more of. Um, CI is a 130-year-old national national enterprise, uh, and they put about 4 million NFTs uh, on-chain on Algorand, which represent the music rights for about 100,000 artists. And, uh, you know, the reason they did it is they wanted to create new economic opportunities for those artists so that people can make a better living uh, making music, um, you know, in Italy and elsewhere. Uh, and what we're seeing happen now is there's new tools um, for artists uh, things like projects like Opulus, which allow for fractional selling of music rights and um, shared royalties and NFTs or projects like Dequency, 
which allow for you know new licensing into into things like TV shows or movies or alternative forms of media. And now all of a sudden you have these rights holders that immediately take advantage of these sort of music focused DeFi apps that are on chain. And so you know I think when I talked earlier about the fact that you know this is really the first time that you have public financial infrastructure that anybody can use, I think that's the kind of uh, collision that, that we're hoping to see see more of over time, where you have you know scale businesses. In the case of CI, there's about a billion dollars of royalty business going on there um, that can now start to inter interact with novel tools that simply couldn't have existed um, in a in a more traditional world um, without smart contracts and public networks behind them. My last question for you, Steve: Where define success for me uh, for Algorand? And tell us about some of the challenges that you have and tell us about some of the opportunities. So we're sitting out here. It's you and Professor McCallie. It's 2027. Uh, give me the success and tell me what challenges you need to overcome. Sure. Well, I think there's a you know a few different things. One is, you know, I think success is um, not only for Algorand, but I'd say for, you know, kind of the public blockchain networks broadly. Um, is you know hundreds of millions or you know billions of people are using these networks every day uh, to transact, and I think people will be you know largely using them as as the financial infrastructure that underpins a lot of the applications that that they use every day. So you know, kind of like uh, an example here might be when you fire up Netflix to watch a TV show, um, you don't know that it's powered by AWS. Uh, but it is nonetheless, and, and people are relying on, you know, different forms of public networks. And so I think what we'll see is hundreds of millions of people that, you know, open different applications every day that are interacting with a chain like Algorand. And, you know, it just becomes part of their part of their life. And I think to that extent, you know, we really do believe that public blockchain networks um, will be kind of the next major public utility that eventually um, is, is just part of the fabric of everyday life um, in a way that, um, you know, in a way that, that uh, you know, will go on for a very long time. You know, if you look at the challenges in, in the short run, and, you know, I think we're excited to see projects um, coming up with solutions to these, you know, uh, I think as is true with any sort of technology in the early days, uh, you know, there's a learning curve uh, to be able to build, you know, applications. I, I think there are a lot of, um, you know, I think it needs to be simpler for developers. Uh, I think user experiences of, you know, some of the centralized apps that have been around and web two apps is, is very good. And I think as you know, I think I think Web three application um, applications need to get to the same standard of usability um, as sort of Web two. Uh, these are all kind of I think eminently solvable problems, but I think that that those are the kinds of things that need to uh, um, need to need to um, build up over time. And then I think a third one that's very important is you know right now you know largely most public blockchains are, are sort of somewhat walled gardens and uh, people are sort of building them, there's going to need to be interoperability between them. And, I, you know, this goes back directly to kind of early days of the internet where, you know, interoperability was sort of hit or miss. There was a lot of problems in it. Um, but, you know, now that's not anything that anybody thinks about because it's largely been solved. And so I think those few things over the next several years, we'll see people taking different approaches to, to solving them. Um, but certainly developer experiences and user experiences and interoperability, I think are, are you know, three of the big rocks that, that um, you know, the community is going to need to figure out over, over the next several years. Well, I, I appreciate you joining us on Salt Talks. I look forward to our relationship. Obviously, uh, Skybridge Capital uh, 
uh, and our research team, huge fans of what you're doing uh, with Algorand. And we believe Algorand is going to be a very big part of the future. And uh, thank you for explaining why. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Anthony. It's great to see you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Steve Kakinos from Algorand. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous SALT Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called SALT Tube. We post all of these episodes on demand and have enjoyed building a great community there. Uh, please spread the word about these SALT Talks. We're on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at SALT Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.